Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What is the original meaning of the Federalist? And should we really actually listen to it and read it as kind of like a constitutional Bible? I'll talk about that on this episode of the Brian McClanahan. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Use that coupon code Jackson for reading Andrew Jackson. Just find it on the course list. Put Jackson in the coupon code, get $70 off, and you get a great class. It's only for the month of August in the year of 2023 that you get that, so make sure you pick up that $70 off coupon. Use the coupon code Jackson. It only lasts for one month, so you want to pick up that coupon while you can. It's the lowest price you ever see on that class, but you can also buy other classes there too at McLeanahan Academy. You've heard about that, and that keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can click on the heart button if you're watching on YouTube under the video. Go to Spotify for podcasts or subscribe there. Also, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Help spread the word. Leave a comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, yesterday we, we talked a lot about the 14th Amendment. And I've made the point in the show that when you start with the fort, you start with Abraham Lincoln, you start with the Fourteenth Amendment, you get a political disaster in America. And Lincoln was a political disaster, without question. Lincoln was a political disaster. We don't ever look at it that way. We always look at Lincoln as a savior of American politics, but he really was the disaster of American politics, a disaster. And what those two quote unquote conservative legal scholars were advocating essentially, and what the one of the other legal scholars are advocating, is an out, a situation which could lead to outright political violence. I'm telling you right now, if, they, if that stuff actually happened, you would see something like this. People are fed up. They're fed up with the corruption. They don't believe what's happening. This That would be a disaster. So I talked about earlier this week, too, Jamel Bowie and the rereading of the declarations. What we've got are two now founding documents. You've got the declaration, which... As I mentioned in that in that article, I mean, this is the thing that people like Paulson and others, the, the guys that wrote that article, right? They work together. They believe the 14th Amendment goes back to the Declaration. It creates this continuity between the two, and it has your two founding documents. The Constitution is irrelevant. The 14th Amendment is the new Constitution. The Declaration is the new Constitution. You see, they work together. I didn't really mention that yesterday, but that's part of it. And then thrown in there, you have this other kind of constitutional Bible, which is the Federalist. And what do you get out of the Federalist, for the most part? I mean, you, there's Madison's uh, uh, 
rumbling ramblings about uh, you know separation of powers and real federalism and these kind of things. But you also have John Jay, who is an ardent nationalist, and he says some very nationalistic things, one people nonsense. And then you also have Alexander Hamilton, who, with the exception of maybe one of the essays, says some pretty strong nationalist things. The point is, how close of attention should we pay to the Federalists? Is it really that important? And what does it actually mean? Now, there was a series at uh, Law and Liberty, uh, which, again, I've, I've told you you should read. I don't agree with everything they put there, of course, but the guy that runs it is a good Calhoun scholar, and they do invite people that uh, think the, the right way to write for it at times. And one of those individuals is Aaron Coleman. Now, Coleman has written a great book, and I've talked about it on this show, um, of the founding period and uh, what he calls anti-federalist thought, but wrote, has written a great book on that. You should go out and get Aaron N. Coleman. He teaches, at, uh, he teaches in Tennessee, and uh, fantastic book. But he also writes for Law and Liberty, and he wrote this piece, and this was published in July, and I've been meaning to talk about it for a while, but the title is The Original Meaning of the Federalist. The Original Meaning of the Federalist. Now, Coleman is a rock-solid Jeffersonian originalist. He's really good. And uh, a rare scholar in this way, right? So, I want to go through this essay because I find it fascinating that we have, you know, we, we can still have people that, <laughs> that say the right things. And this works against me. Look, if, if these people that, that go out and they promote Lincoln and they promote the Declaration, they also promote the Federalist because the Federalist works for them too. You've got the, you've got the three-headed hydra, um, the proposition nation created by Lincoln, but Lincoln is the beginning of it all, right? So you've got Lincoln as the, the main hit. And then you've got the proposition nation myth, and you've got the Federalist. And all these things work together to create this monster of federal supremacy in a way that's anti-original. So he says, whether or not the Federalist remains relevant in modern America largely depends on how one defines relevancy. Do we mean the work remains relevant because of its theoretical expositions on how the Constitution would operate? Or is it relevant as a historical text? I mean, the former, the Federalist has never been genuinely relevant. Now, that's a powerful statement. So he says, is it relevant because of its theoretical expositions on how the Constitution would operate? To that, the Federalist has never been relevant. As a historical text, speaking to a specific historical context, the Federalist remains essential. So as a political text, it's worthless. I agree. I agree. As a historical text, well, it's interesting. But as something where we can really gain knowledge out of what the Constitution means, suspect at best. Now, in McClanahan Academy's Originalist Papers, I cover a number of the Federalist essays because I think the importance of it, if you take it in the larger context of things, they were saying, they were arguing for things in that document that other people were arguing for too. In other words, they were advocating positions that the majority of the proponents of the Constitution favored, at least when it's going through ratification, to try to persuade the other side that this thing wasn't going to destroy the states, most importantly. 
and that there would be some type of check on power on the federal power. That was the whole argument that gave the Constitution the authority that it has, and of course, that led to ratification. That was the argument. He says, several factors explain the Federalist's supposed relevancy to modern audiences. First is the authorship. The essays were written by two members of the upper pantheon of American founders. That would be, of course, Madison and Hamilton. But John Jay was no slouch. I mean, John Jay was a Supreme Court, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I mean, this guy wasn't a political slouch. Very important. But most people recognize Hamilton and Madison. Second, their publications followed a logical progression. You've got 85, right? You read them in order. Third, and as Professor Edmondson points out, this is a running conversation, so Coleman's going to dispute Edmondson here, and I'm not going to get into Edmondson's article, but the essays were wide-ranging in scope and often brilliant in their analysis. Fourth, the essays were the first collection of ratification essays put into a readily available book form and not scattered in obscure works published decades later or left in an 18th-century newspapers. That's important. That's important. Even Washington wanted a copy of the quote-unquote Federalist. So to, this is ingenious. They collect it, put it in a book form. There you go. Well, this is what the Constitution means. You see? These factors explain why jurists and scholars have turned the Federalists into the authoritative source for interpreting the Constitution and consider the text, as Edmondson put it, the most brilliant work of original political philosophy by an American. False. It's not the most brilliant work of original political philosophy. False. That would be John C. Calhoun and his disquisition on government and his discourse. Those two together would be the most brilliant works of American political philosophy, original American political philosophy. Those two. Not the Federalist at all. So Coleman says, the problem of reading the Federalists as political theory, treating the Federalists as a work of political philosophy, suggests that the only way to understand the Constitution and the founders' objectives in framing it is through the wisdom of Publius. By understanding the Federalists, we understand the Constitution and, by extension, what it means to be an American. This approach transforms Publius into a philosopher king and the essays into a decoder ring that cracks the mysteries of constitutional meaning. This, in turn, inclines us to read too much into the Federalists in order to answer our questions rather than theirs. Agreed. Right? So we get this, the Federalists, it's like, oh, the, the light shines down from heaven and the angels sing. And here's the Federalists, just like if we hold up Lincoln's speeches. If we hold up the Declaration. This is what happens. Right? The Zanas are sung. And people genuflect. And we have these things. Additionally, it leads to reading Publius in isolation from all other writings and concerns of the ratification debates. True. We don't read that other stuff. Actually, Liberty Fund did put out a book, Friends of the Constitution. Uh, and I, one of these days, maybe with AI I can get some of this done because there's some things I need to do with the book that are challenging. But one of these days, I'm going to uh, release originalist papers because what I've done is collected 100 essays in favor of ratification that include the Federalists, but also some of these other things. It's not all 85 Federalist essays. There's a good chunk of them in there, but there's also just about as many non-Federalist essays in favor of ratification. And if you don't read those, you don't, you don't get the whole picture. 
Despite his impressive scope and desire to give a satisfactory answer to all the objections, Publius does not address every single issue or concern. It was impossible for him to do so, and as Professor Edmondson rightly notes, it is not an easy read. Yet there are other Federalist writings that cover topics different than those of Publius and that sometimes offer clearer and more concise explanations. Exactly. There's many of them. The Federalist is primarily a polemic, expressly designed by its authors to address anti-Federalist charges against the Constitution. 100% correct. It is a polemic. It's an argumentative style. They're addressing things that the opponents of the Constitution... I don't like the term anti-Federalist. I know it's used... should just say to address opponents' charges against the Constitution. Right? These people weren't... The anti-Federalists weren't really anti-Federalists. They were in favor of federalism. Real federalism. That was the catch. While the essays contain, a brilliant, contain brilliant insights into the nature of politics, the Federalist is not a systemic or systematic inquiry of the type found in Hobbes' Locke, John Adams' Defense of the Constitution, or even John C. Calhoun's Disquisition. Instead, it has a primarily rhetorical purpose, to persuade readers rather than to present a neutral or balanced account of the Constitution. The repetition of points and essay topics in its prolix style reflect the pressing need to respond to this or that anti-Federalist charge rather than from deep reflection and contemplation. Quite often, those that treat the essays as political philosophy overlook the fact that most essays were written in haste, finished at the last minute, and dashed off to the printer. This time crunch afforded the authors little time to edit, revise, or even run arguments by their collaborators. True. Right. Now, I think he points out in this that a lot of the, the last part of the Federalists was published later, right? It was published altogether. And it's it's these are Hamilton's last essays, and a lot of people, well, we're going to read, we're going to find out what Hamilton thought about this, but um, they were written and not even that persuasive, as Coleman points out in this next paragraph. He says, even as a polemic, the Federalists proved ineffective. Edmondson is just wrong to assert that the essay played a significant role in the ratification of the Constitution. It didn't. As Pauline Meyer and Albert Furtwängler have shown, it's another, I talked about yesterday, Bookbinder was a guy's last name. Furtwängler is a good one too. Albert Furtwängler. <laughs> what a great last name. Bookbinder and Furtwängler. That would be a great uh, you know, business name. Not for Bookbinders. That would be too obvious. That has to be something else. Bookbinder and Furtwängler. The, the pieces were not heavily reprinted, especially outside of New York, or even heavily engaged by other Federalists or Anti-Federalists. Right, so I mean, these things weren't, they didn't get printed all over the place at all, and they didn't really have that much of an impact. Remember, New York only ratified the Constitution 30 to 27. They had very little impact in New York. If we're looking for the most critical Federalist essay, it is not Publius we turn to, but instead to James Wilson's Courthouse Address, or Statehouse Yard Speech. Yes, the friend that that was the most important issued just weeks after the ink people had signed the you know, Constitution after the ink barely dry, which received considerable attention and considerable consideration in nearly every state. The argument in Federalist Number Forty Eight against the Bill of Rights, for example, is little more than a rehash of Wilson's earlier remarks. Yes, also Roger Sherman had said these things too, so they're not even that prescient, right? They're just kind of rehashing what other people have said. It's true. Even in New York, where the collaborators published their work, 
The bulk of the 85 essays saw publication long before the state voted for the members of its ratification convention, and the public never saw the last several essays which first appeared in book form. Right. So how important were these things? Well, they're only important to us because of who wrote them. Elevating Publius ignores how other Federalist writers sometimes offer better explanations in defenses of the Constitution. John Dickinson's Fabius essays, while lacking Publius's comprehensiveness, provide a significantly better explanation of Federalism than what is found in the Federalist. True. I love John Dickinson, by the way. He's great. And I do cover Dickinson in that Originalist Papers class at McClanahan Academy. I've got a bundle on that, right? You can get the, all four classes for a good price compared to buying them individually. So you want to check that out. Edmondson also wonders if Jay's inability to contribute substantially to the Federalist Project was unlucky or serendipitous. But Jay penned the 1788 Address of the People of New York, which received far more attention in New York and elsewhere compared to anything Publius published. Those seeking a clear picture of the Federalist ex explanations for the Constitution need to read the broad cor uh, corpus of Federalist works, not simply the Federalist. True. Again, what you need to do is take McClanahan Academy's originalist papers. That's what you need to do. In many ways, the five points for the Federalist relevancy that Professor Edmondson lays out in his essay suffer from the Publius as political theorist treatment. Had a more historical reading been given, one which placed the Federalist within its historical context, perhaps some of Professor Edmondson's reasons for relevancy would look different. Edmondson points on the, Edmondson's points on the complexity of human nature and on slavery particularly suffer from a lack of context. Undoubtedly, the Federalist has a worry view of human nature, but it presupposes an exercise of individual and civic virtue. There is nothing exceptional about Publius's remarks on this topic. Again, Coleman, there is nothing exceptional about what Publius has to say here. There are common notions in the late 18th century. Other writers express these points better and more explicitly in the ratification contest. Dickinson's Fabius essays offer stronger and more explicit and better written discourses on human nature and the necessity of civic virtue. Uh, by the way, Mel Bradford talked a lot about John Dickinson, right? A better guide than reason. He actually titled a book after John Dickinson. Uh, and Dickinson is fantastic. Uh, the McDonald's Force McDonald, like John Dickinson, he's a John Dickinson is one of the most important founders that nobody really knows anything about. Um, uh, he's fantastic. I talk about him in the Politically Incorrect Guide of the Founding Fathers. I've, I talk about him in the McClanahan Academy courses. John Dickinson is important. Uh, he really is one of these forgotten founders. Uh, even the Anti-Federalists shared Publius's concerns about human nature. Although they believed that the Constitution's consolidating tendencies would drain away the virtue of the people, leaving them to their base natures. Well, they were right about that. I mean, this is what we've seen. It's what I talked about last week on why are so many young people looking at identity politics because of what's happening with centralization. It's the symptom of the disease. The disease is centralization. It's something that the opponents of the Constitution thought was going to happen. They were right. Again, placing Publius's thoughts on human nature in context does not reveal any particular relevancy to modern America, any insight that one could not get from studying the period more broadly. In many ways, the discussion of Publius on slavery reads too much into the essay. Federalist 54 is not an anti-slavery tract on the moral problem of slavery 
a way to bring guilt to slave owners for reducing a black man to three-fifths of a human being. Instead, the essay's attempts the essay attempts to persuade northern states that the necessity of a union forced the three-fifths compromise. At the same time, Publius takes a much more historically realistic view of the issue than Edmondson admits. Publius was not twisting the knife by putting slavery in the worst possible light. Instead, he noted that the mixed character of persons and property was the slave's true character in the 18th century. I should note here, too, that there is no evidence that later slave owners thought they lost more than they gained from Publius's remark. Publius is invoked and celebrated by Southern Jeffersonians and Democrats just as much, if not more, than by Northerners. Yeah, I mean, so they weren't they didn't look at this and think, oh, they just uh, they, they criticized us. We can't like I me. Mean, they didn't do that at all. The point of that essay is to talk about how this compromise was necessary to save the Union. The Union was more important than anything else people could come up with, any other objections. That was the Randolph argument. That was the Washington argument. This is what George Washington said. The Union was more important than any objection to the document. We needed a stronger central government. We got it. The Union's more important. Saving the Union is more important than any objection we can come up with. I mean, kind of Jefferson said the exact same thing. He thought it should be ratified, but that they should have amendments or another convention. Something should happen to change some things. Coleman says, I agree with Edmondson that contemporary America is in real need of the spirit of compromise, but I'm not convinced that Publius is inherently relevant to this problem. The appeals and warnings against passion are worthy, but all serve a rhetorical purpose. In essence, in putting these remarks in context, Publius was telling readers that we are the reasonable ones. The opposition is not. Indeed, while the essays warn against heated arguments, Publius was not innocent on this front. True. <laughs> True. In fact, Hamilton could get pretty biting in his essays. He could, he could be pretty nasty. In Federalist 29, he quotes Milton's Paradise Lost to describe anti-Federalists as transforming everything it touches into a monster. In other places, he calls anti-Federalists far-fetched and extravagant and bigoted idolizers of state authority. One could go on, but the point is that Publius engaged in heated and immoderate language that he chastised others for doing. Indeed, making Publius relevant for, this, for his desire for compromise is also striking, considering that Federalist 84, published for the first time only after numerous states had ratified the Constitution on the condition that it receive a Bill of Rights, was an argument on why a Bill of Rights was unnecessary. Exactly right. So it's not a, a document of compromise. It's, this is what the Constitution means. We're not compromising. This is, this is my way or the highway kind of thing. This is what it means. Go away. You're wrong. We're not compromising on any of this. It's not a spirit of compromise. I mean, Coleman is 100% correct here. It's on the grounds of constitutional interpretation that the Federalist shows its relevancy, although it is for reasons different than Edmondson's. So this is where Coleman says there is a historical relevancy to the Federalist. Reading it in its historical context provides modern readers with a chance to compare Publius' Publius's prescriptive on how the Constitution would operate and its theoretical insights with the reality of American constitutional and political development. After all, the Federalist is polemical because it attempted to convince a skeptical public in 1788 that its innovations to the American tradition of self-government were safe. In other words, Publius's purpose was to explain how the Constitution ought to work. True. 
This is why we must give the Federalist a historical rather than a theoretical reading. A historical rather than, so this is how it ought to work. This is what it's going to do, right? This is what it's going to mean. When we ratify this thing, this is what it means. This is how it's going to operate. So historical understanding of it is important. Not a theoretical, but a historical. It is not setting, explaining, or defending the ideal regime or explaining how pre-societal people create civil society, but instead it deals with a particular problem at a specific moment. Thus, reading it as a historical, con- historical text clarifies the essay's point and helps us judge whether Publius's predictions proved accurate to the actual course of American constitutional history. Correct. I mean, how did these people, when they said this is what the general government is going to do, this is what it's not going to do, how did that work? Were they right or were they wrong? When they said this is how it's going to work because, look, we're not going to do X, Y, and Z, we can't do X, Y, and Z, that's where you should read the Federalist. And it's important in that way. It's another voice in all of the voices that lead to ratification and an understanding of what the original Constitution was going to mean. The Supreme Court's use of the Federalists is one method of comparison. Edmondson is correct that its citations of two Publius are not necessarily dispositive. This speaks to the crux of the problem of reading the Federalists as something beyond a historical polemic. If Scotus is not using Publius' arguments to settle issues, then any reference becomes little more than window dressing. This is law office history, using a quote or source detached from its contextual meaning to wrap legal positions with a cloak of historical authority. Yes. If you're not saying, well, uh, so the Federalist says that this is why uh, we had we had federalism because of this, or just clipping a quote to prove a point, that's a problem. Instead, if Scotus used Publius to guide their interpretations, although it shouldn't use more founding era sources than just this, it would lead to wildly different conclusions, decisions. Compare, for example, Federalist Number 11, where Publius argues that congressional power over interstate commerce will allow for, quote, an unrestrained intercourse between the states themselves, to cases such as Wickard v. Filburn or even U.S. v. Lopez, which placed only the slightest of limitations upon congressional authority. Both cases recognize an extensive de facto congressional power to restrain, not make regular interstate trade. If the court used the essays as interpretive guides, it would distinguish between controlled and unrestrained. Yeah. So, I mean, if we use the original understanding of what the Commerce Clause actually meant, then we would have a big free trade zone. The general government would do very little to regulate interstate trade. They wouldn't do much at all. They would make sure that it's wide open. You can do whatever you want. And also, they wouldn't infringe upon intrastate trade, right? That would be a whole other thing. The Supreme Court's use of the Federalists leads to another historical comparison, judicial independence. Edmondson argues that recent attacks on judicial independence illustrate the continued importance of Publius's discussion on the topic. I agree with Edmondson that Publius's remarks on the, on the judiciary are worth considering. Even contextually, Publius was among the only Federalist writers to devote any attention to the third branch. True, I mean, it spent a lot of time on it, in fact. Uh, many of the essays, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but many of, the, many of the essays deal with the judiciary. Yet here's another example of how Publius is more historically relevant than theoretically. 
He can be used historically to compare his explanation of the judiciary with reality. Publius is responding to anti-federalist formidable charges that the judiciary's powers, particularly his powers over equity, would transform it into a super legislature in which it will, its will be, would become law. That was the attack, right? That was the charge. So this is where we get into trouble reading the anti-federalist essays, right? People say, what about the anti-federalist papers? Well, there it is. That's the original Constitution. That's Joseph's story. We can't do that. That was the argument made against it. And the proponents of the document swore that all these things were never going to happen. That's why those essays are important, because the, uh, the proponents, those who favor the Constitution, said all of that is false. You see. Not all that's true. All of that is false. Given the unrepublican nature of that body with its lifetime appointment, anti-federalist fears feared there was little that could be done to stop it. Publius's famous response that the judiciary represented the least dangerous branch because it lacks the purse or the sword and that removal from daily politics is a barrier to tyranny is a brilliant theoretical response. History, though, tells a different story. Few people today would disagree that the Supreme Court is not the most powerful branch of government because it has claimed supremacy over constitutional questions. Despite Publius's assurances that the supposed danger of judiciary encroachments on the legislative authority is in reality a phantom, it is difficult to deny that the Supreme Court acts as the super-legislature that anti-federalists predicted. Yeah, so Federalist essays, this thing's going to be no problem. But we know that's not the case. Because it's happened. It is the problem. It is a super legislature that the opponents of the Constitution predicted. It is that. The provisions Publius believed shielded from undue political pressure have now turned into hardened fortresses that deflect any attempt to check and balance the branch. Yeah, I mean, look, this is why the Jeffersonians had such a problem with the court. Because they thought the states, there should be something else. I mean, same thing with Calhoun. There had to be something else besides the court. Because the court could work in concert with the other branches of the federal government and give you tyranny. And it happens all the time. Finally, perhaps the most crucial historical approach is simply to read the essays and compare them to the federal government's actual operation. A glaring example of this is comparing how the separation of power should work. Essays 47 to 51 with the administrative state. It is readily apparent that Publius's brilliant formulation of ambition, counteracting ambition, has not played out historically. In other words, asking questions of when, how, and why Publius's explanations have not played out leads us away from abstract considerations and into the complexities of historical development. Right, so as a historical document, what, what Coleman is saying here is, okay, we can't read this as theory of government. No, no, no. We look at it as history. This is what people said the Constitution would do. Did it done that? This is what it said the Constitution would not do. Has it followed those rules? As a historical document, this is, this is originalism. This is what basically Coleman is pointing out here. This is originalism. As a historical document, talking about original intent, has the Constitution, has the government lived up to that? Or have we gone 180 degrees in the other direction? In other words, have the opponents of the Constitution been proven correct? Well, yes, but it's only because we didn't follow what the proponents, the Federalists, said we were going to do. They didn't even do it in the first Congress. So as a historical document, it has value. As a theoretical document, not so much. Thus, the Federalist becomes a relevant text in guiding us from the American founding to today. 
When we treat a work written for a specific circumstances as something beyond and above that context, we will misinterpret it or give it greater meaning and emphasis than it deserves. This treatment is how modern America understands, teaches, and uses the Federalist. 100% correct, right? It's not what these people say it is. We consider it relevant for reasons that might not be accurate to its purposes and intent. Reading it in a proper historical context does not take away its brilliance, but it does illustrate that there might be more to understanding the Constitution in America than just the epistles of Publius. 100% correct. There's more out there to this. In understanding the Constitution, there's more to it than that. That's why I love this essay, because I think Coleman did a great job highlighting how the Federalists should be used in concert with other works on the Constitution to explain original intent, to look at it as a historical document. Did we actually live up to how these men said the Constitution would be interpreted? Absolutely not. That's the real problem. So, great essay. Um, I really enjoyed this essay, and of course, I'm sure uh, I'll, I'll get this to Coleman so he can uh, hear that I'm championing his work. But you should go out and read Law and Liberty, particularly when people like Coleman write, or John Grove, he's very good too, good Calhoun scholar. Uh, and um, buy his book, right? Go out and look Aaron Coleman up at Amazon. Get his book and read about the early founding period. It's excellent. All right. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.